Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, the book of Haggai. Many of us gather this morning with no idea about this book of Haggai. Some, if we're being honest, maybe we weren't even sure that this was a book in the Bible until this morning. It's not a book that's very heralded or much quoted. Haggai is not uh, memorialized in children's Bible stories, books, or best-selling adult Bible studies. He's one of the minor prophets, and to be fair, none of the minor prophets get much airtime or pulpit time outside of the prophet Jonah. We don't embroider their verses on wall hangings or sing a lot of worship songs inspired by their messages, but why? The designation of minor prophet doesn't mean that the message of these prophets is minor in content or that they weren't significant prophets. It simply means that they're shorter books. That's all that means. But Haggai gives us a lot to chew on in two short chapters, I think. And as we continue our sermon series on small books with big messages, we'll look at Haggai for the next two weeks. Haggai is interesting because he's different than nearly every other prophet, major or minor, in Scripture in one really important way. I don't know if you picked up on this. People actually listened to what he said and obeyed it. This is not common at all. We don't know anything notable about Haggai's personal life. We just know that he was a prophet who faithfully spoke God's word and people immediately and faithfully responded. That is a legacy indeed. So what was Haggai's word? Essentially, his word is, it's time to rebuild the temple. Starting at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai saying, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you've fared. You've sown much, you've harvested little, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. You that earn wages, you earn wages and put them in bags with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you fare. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You have looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because the house lies in ruins, while all of you hurry off to your own house. A little bit of context is probably helpful here. Haggai's prophecy comes to the people in the year 520 BC, 520 BC, 19 years after the first Jews returned from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from their exile in Persia due to the generous decree of Cyrus. The people of God had been in captivity in Babylon and Persia. For 50 years, 50 years, two generations, basically. And when they first returned to Jerusalem, they were so excited only to find the city in total ruin. A man named Zerubbabel, great name, was commissioned to form in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And he began construction in the year 535 B.C. That was vitally important because, remember, the temple was the physical representation of the presence of God. For any new beginning of God's people in this land, 
The temple was of paramount importance, a sign of God's presence among his people. So, within the first year of returning, the foundation for this temple was laid, but the people became discouraged. They were discouraged by local politics. They were discouraged by the fact that this new temple seemed doomed to fall short of the glory of Solomon's temple. And add to this that many Jews decided to just stay in Persia rather than come home. Morale was pretty low. So construction was suspended as the people continued to settle in the Jerusalem area and make new lives for themselves. God sent Haggai 15 years later, 520 B.C., with a message that demanded action and a new way of living. His message, at least for me, brings up a few blazing questions that I think need attention this morning. The first is this. Is Haggai chapter 1 a universal model for God's discipline of his people? Some of you picked up on that right away when we were reading it. This is one of those topics that can make us theologically pretty uneasy. It seems as if Haggai is tracing the sufferings and difficulties of the people, hunger and thirst and nakedness and poor harvests, and he's connecting them with their relationship with God. He's clearly connecting their difficulties with their lack of passion around rebuilding this temple. So I want to be clear about one thing here. Haggai is not suggesting that every single hardship that we have is automatically a sign of God's discipline in our lives, that God always disciplines us through suffering. That's a dangerous theology, and it doesn't leave us in a very helpful or hopeful place, I don't think. But even as I say that, I would note that our 21st century church has swung to the total opposite extreme, where we don't even expect that God is going to intrude in our everyday lives really at all. We all too often treat God as a historical figure, and we ignore his ongoing work in our everyday lives. We don't deal with some of the hardships that Haggai is talking about in this agricultural society, things like droughts and floods and famine. That's not what most of us deal with. We have a new set of hardships in our urbanized society today, things like business failings and disintegrating families and rampant anxiety and financial crisis. If you're someone dealing with those kinds of hardships, I think you're much more likely to hear in our culture today, God isn't punishing you. God doesn't, God doesn't cause those things to happen. And I say, probably not, but maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. When I look at scripture and even look at my own life story, I see a God who is continually interacting within the circumstances of his people. If you're facing various hardships right now, Here's what I would say. It doesn't necessarily mean that God is disciplining you. You don't need to go to that right away. But times of hardship are the ideal time for some spiritual reflection in your life. I really believe that. Turn to God in these times. Ask him some hard questions about yourself and about your life. Put your life under the lens of scripture in these times and ask, is there something I need to repent of that is adding to my hardships? Are there sins that I need to, to turn away from God? And this leads me to the next important question from Haggai 1. Second question, is it really a sin for us to take care of our families and build the lives for ourselves? Because it seems like Haggai is saying that, right? 
That's essentially the issue at hand here. Haggai is telling the people that they have misplaced their priorities. They focused on themselves, their comforts, their homes. They've neglected God. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. There's always more that can be done for God. Always. There's always more time to give. There's more money that needs to be given away. There's more volunteering that needs to happen. More work that needs to be done. So if we're focused on prioritizing God, we might never put time into our own personal lives. And surely that is not what God wants for us. Well, fear not. This passage is not saying that one cannot enjoy material blessings like a home or emotional blessings like family. I think it's important to remember, though, that these people were building and beautifying their own homes for two whole decades while the temple site was completely inactive. Two whole decades. This was a dangerous place for the people of God to be in because if you wait that long, the priority of God and his presence was so misplaced for such a long period of time that they were in danger of losing it all together. And I think that's what Haggai is making clear here. So I'd like to talk for a moment about priorities. I was reminded by a friend last week that our thinking of priorities today is really quite skewed in a historical sense. Did you know that there is hardly any instances of the plural word priorities in literature until about 1940 when its usage became popularized? Up until that point, only the singular priority was used to represent a mass noun. So up until 80 years ago, there was really only one governing priority in the mind of people, writers, thinkers. This idea that we can have many, many priorities, a priority list, would have been totally foreign in biblical times. We see this in the New Testament. If there was ever a passage about priorities, it's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear essentially our material things, but instead seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things shall be added unto you. Notice that Jesus does not say, make a priority list and, and rank your priorities from one to ten, and make sure that the kingdom of God is somewhere in the top three to five-ish range. No, it's a singular priority. The kingdom of God, and then everything else is going to fall into place. To be frank, I think if I spent enough time with any one of you today, I could tell you what your governing priority is. I think I could. It's vividly displayed in our financial choices, our time management, our goal setting, our family expectations. In a world filled with increasing activities and opportunities, I feel strongly that individuals and families absolutely must ask serious questions about what their governing priority is. Because if the kingdom of God is our only governing priority, as Jesus commands us to do, how would that change our lives? What values would we bring to this modern life and society that reflect the goodness of God? Will we establish individual and family rhythms of rest that release us from the tyranny of the urgent? Will we clear space in our schedules to hear the voice of God and rejuvenate our souls? Will we reflect our priority of God's kingdom in the way that we spend our money, in the ways that we speak, in the ways that we use social media, 
the friendships that we make. So go back to our first question. When I think our priority, I, 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 I think our priority when, when it's claimed and it's lived into, we're much more likely to be in the center of God's will for us. Things were not going well for the Jews in Jerusalem, at least in part because of misplaced priorities. God says through Haggai, now look at how you fared with the priority that you have. I think it's fair to ask this morning, how would you define your priority structure? And then, how are you faring? Are your relationships healthy? How's your emotional well-being? How's your view of work or career or home? Are you restless? Are you anxious? Are you coping? Are you depressed? Are you despairing? If you resonate with this, then I would venture to say the temple of your life, the presence of God in your life, is likely in ruins while you've been building other things. I think it's time to tend to the temple now for you. It's time to claim this new priority and then see if your circumstances change. I'd be surprised if they didn't in many, many ways. And this leads me to the final burning question. What, what should our priority be? What should our priority be? It's cliche to say, you know, God is number one for me. Well, what does that actually mean for us? Well, we get a good answer to that question in our text. Verse 8 says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So what if our priority in life was to please God and give him glory? This is well in line with what Jesus commands in Matthew 6, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If my priority is to please and give glory to God in all things, it keeps me from self-centeredness. It makes me aware of his presence. It causes me to continually seek him in all things. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Worship, the Missing Jewel in the Evangelical Church, he writes about the priority of glorifying God. He says this, The purpose of God in sending his son Jesus to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that he might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do it again, that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration, feeling and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to the Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying something quite remarkable here. He's saying that we're created for this priority. We're hardwired to be drawn to the idea of pleasing God and glorifying Him. And I have to believe that you feel that today as well, that you know when you've lost that priority and, and something is not quite right. I don't doubt that many of you are feeling that way this morning. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his exposition on the life of the prophet Jeremiah, shares an illustration that fits so perfectly this morning. He shares about his observations of the behavior of tree swallows near his home in Montana. For several weeks, he had observed these swallows gathering food for their mates and chicks, and finally was delighted to see three little birds, three little swallows, perched on an old branch four feet above the surface of the lake. He was about to watch these three chicks learn how to fly. One adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started shoving them towards the end of the branch, pushing, pushing. 
the end one fell off, and somewhere between that branch and the water four feet below, the wings started moving, and the chick was off on his own. Then the second one, same thing. But the third one was a little more stubborn. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough that he swung downward as he was clinging, and then he tightened again tenaciously. But the parent persisted. He pecked and desperately cling, and desperately cling, uh, he pecked those desperately clinging talons until it was more painful for that chick to hang on than the risks and insecurities of flying. And the chick released its grip, and lo and behold, the wings started pumping. The mature swallow knew what the chick did not know, that it would fly and that there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. With this, Peterson concludes the following. Birds have feet and they can walk. Birds have talons and they can grasp a branch securely. They can walk. They can cling. But flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best gracefully and beautifully. Friends, there are many things other than pleasing God and honoring him that we can choose as a priority. Most of them have good good parts of them, and, and we can follow them fairly well. But when we do, it's like those chicks clinging, on, clinging onto the branch or, or standing on the ground. Sure, we can do that, and we can do it just fine, but that's not what we were created to do. Ultimately, the pursuit of the pleasure and glory of God is what lies at the core of our being as those created in his image. You are hardwired to have this as your priority. And I truly believe this leads to the abundant life where everything else will be added unto us. You weren't created for the anxious rat race where you feel like you can never catch up and you constantly wonder if what you're doing really matters. You weren't created to build your own monuments while God's house lies in ruins. You weren't created for that. You were created for so much more. So the questions that matter this morning come straight from Haggai. And let me ask them to you. How are you faring is God's temple in ruins in your life? Only you can answer that question this day. But let me end with some great news, okay? A change in priority is totally possible. I know that some of you feel stuck and you're not even sure where to begin. And even if you could begin, you're clinging to the branch and you're unsure if you could fly. But change is very much possible. Verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. As I said in the beginning, this is a miracle. The people heard this difficult word from Haggai, and they were convicted, and they changed. Notice they did not repent merely with words. They repented with action. And I sincerely believe that some of you here this morning needed to hear this word today because you've been convicted in the same way. Maybe you feel like God's word is pushing you off the branch toward a new priority of pleasing him and giving him glory. Don't resist it. Go with it. You can make changes. You can return to the great priority that you are called to and created for. If you're in a period of your life where you're in a dry spot, where God's temple is in ruins for you, and you're not faring all that well, 
God himself invites you to prioritize and recommit and start giving your very best to him. Listen for God's word for you this day. And then like those Jews so long ago, respond in obedience, aiming to give God pleasure and glory. Amen. I'd like to pray as we close and before we sing our final hymn. I remember making a, a priority list in college. A preacher, somebody had shared, you know, write down the things that are most important to you and put them in order. But in light of the reality of the singular priority, I want to think today, if we were to think about the things that are important to us and the overarching umbrella of those being uh, pleasing God and giving him glory, I want you to think about some of those things that are important to you. Many of us will have the same ones, like family and work and friends, our home. But maybe you have unique ones in your life. Maybe you're caring for somebody. Maybe you have a specific area that you feel really called to, where you're spending a lot of time volunteering somewhere, doing something, new opportunities for you. I want you to ask the question as I pray this morning, how, God, can I further please you and give you honor in these things? What would it look like for me to give you glory and honor? Let's pray. Lord, our desire today is to give you glory and honor. Lord, would you teach us what that means, what it means for that to be our governing priority in our life. And as we think about all the other things that you've given to us, the opportunities that are before us and the things that are important to us, we want to ask, Lord, how might we give you pleasure and glory further through our interaction and work with these things, through our family, through our work, through the priority that we have in our lives. Lord, would you find us to be obedient like those so long ago, willing to work, willing to get dirty so that we might give you pleasure and glory and that your temple in our lives might not lie in ruins, but might be built again these things in your name. Amen. Well, let's stand.